I was wondering what, what uh, style of music God prefers. What's his favorite? And then it occurred to me, he's not even thinking about that. He's looking at the hearts of people and whether they're really engaged in worship to him. That's what he's interested in. That's what he's glorified by. Well, join me this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be going there in just a few minutes. Sometimes we Christians use terms that people do not understand. For example, we might ask someone if they are saved. And they might, in return, reply, saved from what? I've actually had people say that to me. Sometimes it can feel like we're having two different conversations. We're saying one thing, and they're hearing another, and it's probably because they don't speak Christianese. Every, every segment of society has a language that they go by, every occupation, and we use terms as Christians that the average person on the street might not understand. But God's Word comes to the rescue. It makes things so simple and clear, and it speaks a language that everyone can understand. So what does it mean to be saved? How would you explain it to someone else, someone asked you? Well, the Bible gives us word pictures that clearly explain what it means to be saved, and we're going to look at three of those today. The first one is, I was dead, now I am alive. I'll put these in first person. Those of you who are saved can identify with that. Those of you who are not possibly can understand it. So when I say I was dead and now I'm alive, we want to talk about the meaning of death. What does death really mean? If you want to understand what death is, think of it as separation. In the physical death, the real conscious you is separated from your body. You go on consciously aware of your presence, but your body stops. In spiritual death, the real conscious you is separated from God, and there's a problem there between you. Theologians refer to the state of spiritual death as total depravity, and J.I. Packer, who lived from 1926 to 2020, one of my favorite uh, theologians, explains the meaning of total depravity. He writes, It signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, Not in degree, for no one is as bad as he or she might be, but in extent. It declares that no part of us is untouched by sin, and therefore no action of ours is as good as it should be, and consequently nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. Unless grace saves us, we are lost. Spiritual death or separation from God is spoken of in Romans 5.12, which says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin, we're separated from God because of that, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. One thing I know as I stand here and look into every person's eyes is I'm looking at sinners, and so are you when you look at me. 
We're all sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's the condition we're in. Spiritual death is explained further in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses right now. As for you, Paul writes to the Ephesians, who primarily are saved people. Uh, Not everyone in church is saved, but he's speaking to a saved audience here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is, you were separated from God in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That would be Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. As of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature the objects of wrath. God is in a constant, continual position against sin and against sinners. Though he loves them, he cannot accept them the way they are. So this passage says that we were doing our own thing and we really didn't care if God liked it or not. Do you notice that in the world today that people are doing their own thing, not caring whether God likes it or not? They're redefining terms, redefining lifestyles and saying that what's good is bad and what's bad is good. And we're in a mixed up, messed up world because of spiritual death, people separated from God, not caring what he thinks and not really bothering with his opinion on anything. And we were like that before we were saved. And it was okay because everyone else was doing it. We were not much worse than anybody else, better than some people. So it seemed like everything was okay. But the wrath of God is always positioned against sin and disobedience. In our day and age, the love of God is stressed, and I'm glad it is, because God is love, and He's known as being loving. He's available to us. He's accessible to us. He's only a prayer away. He cares about us individually, cares what happens to us. But He still cannot handle, because of His holiness, sin cannot exist in His presence. And he frowns on disobedience. A writer for Our Daily Bread, C.P. Hea, wrote, Calling sin by a softer name will change neither its offensiveness to God nor its cost to us. So this is why unforgiven, unsaved people cannot earn favor with God. It's tragic to me to think of all the people in the world who are religious, but unsaved. Because all of their religious activity will not gain favor with God. I hate to say it, but false religion is what's causing war in the Middle East. It's bigotry. It's false religion that becomes bigotry. And if you don't do what I say and act like I want you to act, I'll kill you. This difficult world we live in. And that's why God cannot accept service rendered by the energy of the flesh. In Romans, Paul wrote to the Roman church, church in Rome. He, uh, he explained this. He said in Romans 
chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. It doesn't matter how religious they are, how, how hard they try, or how sincere they are. They are still not forgiven, not saved. The sinful nature rules their life. And he says, you, however, speaking to believers, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So Paul is saying every saved person has the indwelling Spirit in their life, which enables us to serve God in a way that's acceptable to Him. So that's the meaning of death. Spiritual death, separation from God. Let's talk about the meaning of life for a minute. I started out this point by I was dead, now I'm alive. So what's the meaning of life? Well, life begins with birth. Another thing I know about everybody here is all of you had a mother. So flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. We were born once from our mother's. We must be born again by the Spirit of God or born from above. We must have a spiritual birth which provides forgiveness of sin based on the merits of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection if we are to be in favor with God. The world has a term for people like us, born-agains. And it's almost like a derogatory term. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, one of the religious, most religious men that ever lived, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. So being born again is a necessity. God is kind and God is loving and he will give us spiritual life if we will ask him for it. And pick it back up in Ephesians at verse 4 where we left off. We see that presented there for us. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's like it's a free gift. Not what we do. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's grace we've been saved by. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him. In the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. We're going to be in heaven and know we don't deserve to be there. But we're there based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And that's, that is uh, incomparable riches. Didn't deserve it, can't earn it, but we're there because of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves. It's nothing you can do. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one will stand in heaven and say, I did so many good things, I earned my way here. That's not going to happen. Nobody will be there based on their own good works. But we will have good works after we're saved. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we can't be saved by doing good works, but after we are saved, we will do good works. And I thank the Lord for the ministry of Christians that lets the world know we care the way God cares. 
So the second word picture we see in the Bible is that I was lost and now I am found. I was dead, now I'm alive. I was lost and now I'm found. What do we mean when we say somebody's lost? Well, we were lost to God. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they hid from Him. Back in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They used to fellowship with him then. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God knew where he was. He was asking the question to get Adam to think about it. Why are you hiding from me? You know, lost people hide from God. Lost people are afraid to trust God with their lives. That was a very difficult step for me to take, though I was born and raised religious. Because I know that when I got saved and asked Jesus to come into my heart, I was relinquishing control of my life to Him. And that can be a hard thing to do. It's disappointing but not surprising when people pay no attention to the gospel. They're hiding from God. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and had them become kind of fearful? And I don't want to take that step. I, you know, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid to relinquish control of their life to God. But believe me, that is not something to be afraid of. Something to be afraid of is not relinquishing control of your life to God. Lost people get into trouble and cannot find their way out, just like sheep. Look around. You can see examples of it everywhere, I'm sad to say. Evidence abounds that people are lost. Every time you see a war going on, every time you see sin happening, every time you see people justifying sinful things, that's because they're lost. But the good news is we were sought by God. When a shepherd loses a sheep, he will seek to find it. When a woman loses a coin, she will sweep her house to find it. And when a father loses a son, he will seek to find him. In Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 15, the father must have been seeking his son's return because he saw him when he was a long ways off. I can just see him maybe standing on the porch looking. Maybe today will be the day my son will return. Many of us know what it's like to have a wayward child. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. But that is not a promise. That's a principle. In all likelihood, if we train up our child in the way he should go, it's more likely that they will follow up on that. But it's not a promise. It's a principle. Because every person has a free will and decides for themselves whether they'll follow God or not. But we as parents of wayward children continue to look for their return. We continue to pray for their return because we who know the Lord know what's at stake in this life and in eternity if they don't know the Lord. It's tragically important. Now, when the prodigal son returned to his father, 
The older brother who represented the Pharisees that Jesus was telling this story to represented religious but lost people. We have a lot of religious but lost people today. The older brother who was always doing the right thing and didn't act like that younger brother did, he resented his father for welcoming his younger brother home. And here's how the father explained it to him. He said, My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. I love you too. But, when we, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Don't you get it? This was a great thing that happened. And by the way, the older brother said, this son of yours. He didn't say my brother. He said, your son. But the father said to him, he's your brother. He's reminding him of the relationship that he has. Some people resented Jesus for associating with tax collectors and sinners. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The reason they resented him them was they were really traitors to the Jewish people. They were, they were occupied by Rome, and Rome was taxing them severely. And tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, sided with those who were occupying them. They collected taxes from their own people, and they were able to collect more than they had to collect so they could keep, the, keep what was left. So you constantly see tax collectors and sinners put in the same category. And Jesus, when he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he took this opportunity when he was befriended Zacchaeus as an opportunity to explain why he came. In Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. Jesus came to earth to save sinners like you and me. What a blessing. When Jesus finds us, he restores us to abundant life filled with meaning and purpose. If you've been saved, it's because Jesus found you. And if you have not been saved, you are still lost, and Jesus is looking for you. Our Daily Bread writer, Lisa Cole, Leslie Cole, I mean, and Leslie can be a man or a woman. This is a man. That's uh, not always clear nowadays, but uh, it's clear here. So <laughs> he wrote, When we discovered that my mother-in-law had gone missing while shopping with a relative, my wife and I were frantic. Mom suffered from memory loss and confusion, and there was no telling what she might do. Would she wander the area or hop onto any bus thinking it would take her home? Worst case scenarios spun through our minds as we began to search for her, crying out to God, please find her. Hours later, my mother-in-law was spotted stumbling along a road miles away. How God blessed us in being able to find her. Several months later, her, he blessed her. At 80 years of age, my mother-in-law turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. 80 years old. Jesus, comparing humans to lost sheep, gives this illustration. Suppose a shepherd had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Shepherds counted their sheep to make sure everyone was accounted for. In the same way, Jesus, who likens himself to that shepherd, values each one of us, young and old. When we're wandering in life, searching, wondering about our purpose, it's never too late to turn to Christ. God wants us to experience his love and blessings. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. God values you. He can't handle unsaved people. He can't allow them into his presence, but he came to save you. He came to find you. He values you. He cares. So I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was lost, and now I'm found. Our third word picture, third and final. Some of you have been waiting for that word. (laughs) Our third word picture is, I was blind, and now I can see. So we need light in order to see. This is true physically, and it's true spiritually. This time of year, I get up, it's still pitch dark outside. Can't see without artificial light. So spiritual blindness is represented as darkness in Scripture. Religion and self-righteousness can cause people to be blind to their need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I've been asked if I'm a hell, fire, and damnation preacher. (laughs) A better question is, was Jesus? And I'll let a couple scriptures answer that question for you. Jesus called the teachers of the law and the Pharisees blind guides and blind fools. I come up here and come to this church to preach, and you're all really nice to me. You smile at me. You came because you wanted to come. But I'm not conducting a ministry like Jesus did. I'm not conducting a ministry like Paul did. They were killed for their testimony. They were killed because of the message they preached. And Jesus, when a congregation would gather, he would tell it like it is. He'd say, you're blind fools. You're blind guides. Your religion has blinded you. You're still in darkness. You're not going to accept me. And I'm your only way to hope. Search the scriptures if you think you have eternal life in them. They are they which testify of me. If you're really going by the Old Testament, you'll know I'm the Messiah. And I mean, he read them the riot act. He exposed their blindness so he could cause them to see. He didn't get any thrill out of putting people down. He was trying to get them to see their lostness so that he could save them. He cared about them and he loved them. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15, Jesus speaking, Woe to you. Woe means judgment is coming. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's pretty heavy. But he's telling it like it is because he wants them to see that they're in darkness, and he wants them to come to the light. In Matthew Chapter 15, 
verses 12 through 14, Jesus had been speaking like that. And verse 12, the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus was a hellfire and damnation preacher. Not because he got a kick out of talking tough to people, but because he had to get them to see their lost condition before they'd see their need to be saved. Before they'd see their need to come to him. The Apostle Paul explained, among many other things, why the world is in the condition it's in right now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. He said, The God of this age, that's Satan, that's one of his titles, the God of this age, and people in our society and people in the world today are worshiping Satan. Whether they're Satan worshipers or not, they are following him. Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And you're the, his son in the sense that you're following what he wants you to do. People are taking positions and speaking words and taking stands that are satanic today. Even though they're not Satan worshipers. They're against everything God wants for us. And Paul spoke. He said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Blind. I was blind and now I can see. Blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What a tragedy. What a sad, sad, sad situation. And why the world is in the position it's in now. I know we as Christians can still sin. We're not perfect. I'm not trying to establish an us and them scenario. I'm just saying God says we need to have light and we're in darkness before we come to Christ. And there are none so blind as those who will not see. Spiritual light, on the contrary, spiritual darkness, spiritual blindness is represented as darkness. Spiritual light is represented as Spiritual sight is represented as light. Jesus in John 8, 12 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we who have experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ know that it's almost like when we came to him, the blinders were taken off and we could see. I was in an apprenticeship class when I came to Christ in the early 70s at age 24. And uh, my fellow students were asking me, well, what is it like? And there was a textbook sitting on the table, and I said, it's like I can see everything in that textbook without opening it up. Of course, I couldn't do that, but that's, the w that's how it felt to me, how much I knew all of a sudden was the light went on. I had light I could see spiritually. In 2 Peter 2.9, Peter says that when God saved us, He called us out of darkness and into wonder, His wonderful light. Our daily bread writer James Banks shared the following. On our way here, we stopped in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And North Carolina is in this illustration. In 1799, 12-year-old Conrad Reed found a large glittering rock in the stream that ran through his family's small farm in North Carolina. 
He carried it home to show his father, a poor immigrant farmer. His father didn't understand the rock's potential value and used it as a doorstop. The family walked by it for years. Eventually, Conrad's rock, actually a 17-pound gold nugget, caught the eye of a local jeweler. Soon the Reed family became wealthy, and their property became the site of the first major gold strike in the United States. They were blinded to the value of the rock until the jeweler explained it to them. Then they could see it. People are blinded to the value of God's salvation until someone helps them to see it. I have another illustration that was our Daily Bread article yesterday that I added to this message. Lisa Samara wrote this. Have you ever looked through low-priced items at a yard sale and dreamed that you might find something of incredible value? It happened in Connecticut when a floral Chinese antique bowl purchased for just $35 at a yard sale was sold at a 2021 auction for more than $700,000. That's a pretty good return on your investment. The piece turned out to be a rare historical significant artifact from the 15th century. It's a stunning reminder that what some people consider of little worth can actually have great value. Writing to believers scattered throughout the known world, Peter explained that their faith in Jesus was belief in the one who'd been rejected by the wider culture. Despised by most of the religious Jewish leaders and crucified by the Roman government, Christ was deemed worthless by many because he didn't fulfill their expectations and desires. Sounds like today, doesn't it? He doesn't fulfill my desires. I don't want to live that way. I want to live the way I want to live. But though others had dismissed Jesus' worth, he was chosen by God and precious to him, 1 Peter 2.4. His value for us is infinitely more precious than silver and gold, or gold. And we have the assurance that whoever chooses to trust Jesus will never be ashamed of their choice. When others rejected Jesus as worthless, when others reject Jesus as worthless, let us take another look. God's Spirit can help us see the priceless gift of Christ who offers to all people the invaluable invitation to, be, to become part of the family of God. So what do we see when God gives us light? We begin to understand God's perfect holiness, and by contrast, humankind's unacceptable sinfulness. We see God's patient and persistent love toward us. We see the eternal danger of living now and entering into eternity without a relationship with Jesus Christ. We see our responsibility to share the gospel with other people. So what do I mean when I tell you that I've been saved? I was dead, now I am alive. I was lost, now I am found. I was blind, now I can see. John Newton, the slave trader, who lived a horrible life and treated people terribly, came to Christ and wrote the song Amazing Grace. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. All of this was made possible because Jesus Christ died in my place. He paid the price for my sins and your sins. If you've been saved, it's because Jesus found you. If you are not yet saved, you are lost to God and Jesus is seeking you. Please let him find you. He will fill your life with meaning and purpose. And then when this fleeting life is over, He will give you eternity in heaven with Him and with all redeemed people. As I close, I would just like to say, with a message like this message today, my prayer is that God would touch hearts. If anyone here has never come to Christ, you've never trusted Him with your life, given your life to Him, relinquished control of your life, asked Him in prayer to become your Savior, and you know He did. The Holy Spirit came into your life, and that that transaction was made. I pray that today will be the day you'll make that decision. In simple prayer, asking Him to come into your heart and come into your life. If you want to talk to anyone after the service, if God is dealing with you, if you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to make a decision for Christ, Seek me out or one of the elders or one of the people in the church here. We'd be happy to talk to you and pray with you. So let's pray and be close. we'll close our service. Father, we thank you so much that our lost condition, our rebellion against you, was potentially solved by Jesus Christ. The offer is on the table. We can come to him and have life. We can have purpose and meaning in this life. We can have eternity with you and with the saints in heaven, with all who've been saved. We can be reunited with loved ones who knew Christ and spend eternity in joy and happiness instead of sorrow and misery. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in our lives to help us to see the importance of this. If we're lost to be saved, if we're saved to share the gospel with other people, to live our lives to honor you and to represent you accurately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.